you're listening to I Might Be Wrong, a podcast hosted by myself, Rich Needham, and my co-host, Henry Salmon. Welcome back. We're back. We're back. Henry, we're back. This is good, Rich. It's been a while. Yeah, it has. We took a little bit of a break because I think real life just started to get in the way but we're yeah we're going to do a few episodes today just to pull the curtain back and so yeah we should be good for the next month or so and then hopefully we'll get back on schedule for pretty regular releases i think i think so i think coming into the winter it's easier to do this kind of thing i think summer caught us and we ended up being sociable well we just wanted to do the fun things that we've been missing out on for 18 months Precisely. <laughs> i think but anyway we're back in the room we are back and we are back with an actual metaphorical bang because you've picked one of the one of the biggest albums of all time i think i think so yes i've picked nirvana's nevermind as the album that we should talk about today which is shooting for the moon a bit and i have a confession to make when i chose this album it was probably end of August, start of September, mm-hmm. and it was just before all of the 20th anniversary Nirvana stuff came out and all yeah. of the album review websites, uh, so many people did interviews and re-releases and all sorts to, to go over this. And I tried to front run it and get all of my material together before then. Yeah. Then we didn't record... So first off, we've missed that boat. And secondly, <laughs> I haven't watched any of that stuff because I've just been, life's been too busy. Yeah. So, so probably an apology to all of those massive Nirvana fans out there. If we don't quite hit the mark because of all this other stuff that's come out recently, then sorry, but we're, yeah, we're late. <laughs> Honestly, if, if you're a massive Nirvana fan, you should be watching all those documentaries anyway. And us yeah. retelling you things that you already knew is, is probably pointless. So we're going to do it in our own style and just sort of muddle through, really. Yeah, that's kind of <laughs> standard. So Nirvana, never mind. I assume this is an album you came across at school. It is. And it was the first album of theirs I came across at school. They were kind of exploded into the playground and were the first real big band that got everyone's attention to the point where friends in the in the playground and enemies as well would coagulate into little bunches because you'd have a walkman someone would have an earpiece normally the owner of and would pass the second earpiece around so that people could listen to this album yeah the teachers must have thought we're all doing drugs or something because there was this little huddle of people trying to get a (laughs) listen of this one album yeah. It was that big that people were kind of queuing up. So my first experience of the album wasn't wasn't Smells Like Teen Spirit, but it was in bloom because the queue <laughs> for listening was, was so long that I wasn't in the kind of front runners. Uh, so yeah, that's where I came across it. Brilliant. For those who don't know Nirvana as a band in detail, tell us about Nirvana because they're, they're sort of an interesting bunch with some big personalities. Yeah, so... They started um, and finished as a three-piece, but the starting three-piece, Kurt Cobain, Chris Novoselic, and Chad Channing, is probably not the three that you know now. Obviously, Chad Channing, the drummer, eventually got replaced by Dave Grohl, who is obviously someone that we all know well, being a drummer for the Foo Fighters and many other side projects. But those were the three that started it back in, I guess, 89, and... They, even even from the start, were a little bit different to the the popular loud music at the time. So in the late 80s, it was kind of hair metal yep. and 
there were a lot of bands out there who were popular and strutting around the stage and being very kind of flowery I guess and flouncy and Nirvana cut all through that with a bit of a knife and tried to change things yeah heavy metal was was about showy aggression and grunge was more about loudly being depressed in the basement of your parents house and it captured the generation these are the poster boys for generation x and i was what 10 when nevermind came out and i was excited by it really excited by it and you kind of think those who were in their teens and in their early 20s who didn't quite feel interested in that kind of heavy metal prog rock style of music when something like this comes along and it's a uh, it's a big thing but they were following on the shirt tail of a few other smaller bands in seattle right the seattle grunge scene was where they kind of grew out of yeah and it's incredible isn't it that such a globally huge music style came out of just this one small american west coast city yeah nirvana talk about the melvins a lot as being a an inspiration for them and if you listen to the melvins they're exactly what you'd expect of grunge they're very much the sound is grungy it's got this kind of thick claggy guitars and slightly kind of snarly grumbly vocals the melvin's drummer actually dale crover drummed on a few of the tracks in on bleach which is nirvana's first album oh wow and we'll go into this in a little bit more detail he there were problems with with chad channing the the, the drummer yeah to the point where with bleach they recorded the album he recorded a few songs and he basically wanted more input he wanted to be the guy that did the writing he wanted to get more involved and Cobain said that's not going to happen I'm I'm the front man yeah and interestingly when Grohl came in if you listen to interviews with him at the time he was saying that he also was could write songs and was interested but for most of Nirvana's career it was Cobain that was doing it and Grohl was just he just sat in the background and didn't do anything. I wonder whether that's an element of the dynamic of being in a band from when it forms and feeling like you have that ownership over the very foundations of the band versus being a guy who, I mean, he was he was a fan of the band before he was in the band. He knew who they were. He liked their style already. You're then coming in to be part of that. You almost, that sets you up to being deferential to a, to a front man who's very strong on what he thinks should be the way to do stuff. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And um, Novella, Christ, I'm going to call him Christ because yeah. I can never pronounce his surname. As a bassist, he feels like a bit more of a peacemaker easygoing type who didn't necessarily feel the need to put his stamp on things so i mean there's a great quote from Grohl saying that the music in terms of the musical relationship that was a match made in heaven between the three of them Uh, but he talks about the fact that personally it was a bit off to be honest of course we loved each other we were friends but you know there was a dysfunction in nirvana that a band like food fighters doesn't have but that emotional dysfunction in nirvana was relieved when we put on instruments if the music hadn't worked we wouldn't have been there together i truly believe that there's some people you can only communicate with musically and sometimes that's an even greater deeper communication and that really i think sums up more about kurt cobain than it does about the other two he feels like that struggling with the demons insular difficult to deal with sometimes character yeah and so when they started out you know a small town band they recorded bleach for six hundred dollars it was 
super budget and when you listen to it it's it's great but it's kind of rough around the edges and i love you it you can it's hear what, that I, I i listen to bleach a lot i think it's a great yeah. album they sold about forty thousand records in kind of the year after its release so it did okay sub pop obviously it was their biggest selling record for sub pop who was their um who they recorded with interestingly when nevermind came out people suddenly bought bleach which is what i did yeah Bleach ended up selling nearly 2 million copies and it went stratospheric and it became Sub Pop's biggest selling album. But at the time, they were a small town band. They were making good grunge music, but it wasn't it wasn't life changing stuff. There is a big step between Bleach and Nevermind in terms of the melodic nature of the music. So Bleach is much more aggressive punchy but it it doesn't necessarily have the same level of riffs and hooks and catchiness that nevermind has and i think a lot of people bought nevermind loved it went back bought bleach and went oh this is this isn't for me because it's almost punky more than is grungy in places it has that grunge i think about grunge in terms of fidelity so for me you think about you know there's particularly those really overly produced late stage heavy metal Mm -hmm. albums they're incredibly crisp and clean and you can hear every note and you take something like bleach and you you might as well have had a microphone buried in the corner on the other side of the studio considering how the sound comes out into your ears yeah it's very different and a lot of inspiration for nevermind came from one of your favorite bands who we haven't actually talked about yet um <laughs> i'm gonna bring them up yeah <laughs> or i was gonna bring them up if you hadn't so surfer rosa um in 1988 was That's such a good album. a huge inspiration for cobain and he said when it came out he loved the sound and it was a sound that he wanted to try and match but yep. he said he was quite intimidated but then <laughs> he saw the pixies become huge and off the back of that he thought well I want to follow my instincts. If the Pixies are suddenly making, selling huge amounts of record and there's popularity there, why don't we become more pop? And let's step away from the sub-pop pushed angle of you need to be grungy like the Melvins. Right. And I do think there's a real reflection of that, particularly in the bass lines. You think about the bass lines on tracks on Doolittle as an album. So specific tracks like Debaser. And you can hear echoes of what the Pixies were doing with setting up bass lines to be melodic and other things to be thrashy around those very pretty bass lines. And it's the same. You think about, I think we've talked about this a bit in the past and someone had commented around this idea that the Beatles in their mid album period, the really creative period that they had, they were setting up bass lines to be melodies Mm -hmm. rather than the melodies being driven by pianos or guitars or whatever. And I think that is a thread that follows through into this. And you're right in terms of the Pixies being a really great place to think about Nirvana and and the evolution of, of rock music in the States through those bands. And some of the later interviews with Cobain are quite telling. And this is, you know, we'll talk about his demons later, but... He says it's quite it's kind of a limited formula and he wonders whether how much further they could go after Nevermind and they obviously released a new after that. But he always expressed some doubt that they just weren't talented enough to go into new directions. Yeah. And we see a lot of bands try to do new things and I think uh, 
some of his problems stemmed from just not having enough confidence to go elsewhere just because they'd found a sound which people liked and they just stayed stuck with it. Yeah, it's interesting that because grunge really was this very, very massive thing for a very brief period in terms of the bands coming out with new stuff that was hitting the mainstream and it very rapidly moved on to other places. So I'm trying to think what would have been big in america maybe it shifted back to pop music but certainly in the uk we we had that shift to Britpop. yeah and that's very much not a grungy sound and and that was it like there was this slither of maybe four or five years where grunge was the biggest thing and then it fell away again and maybe it's partly that it's there's a limited amount you could do with that sound without evolving to something yeah on top of it yeah there were bands like Soundgarden I guess are an obvious um, close relative but there weren't bands who really took grunge to another level it kind of just ran its course right and do you think about some of the bands beyond that so Pixies broke up Breeders was Kim Deal's band Frank Black and various versions of that for his his side of things so you've got them, but they're doing things that are different from what the Pixies was. And even with the reformed Pixies, that sound is not what it was. It doesn't have the same raw energy. And I think grunge and that style of rock needs youthful, raw energy to go into it. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, what, late 90s, early 2000s, then you start having... I guess new metal and all that stuff appearing out of, you know, causing havoc with the charts. But you're right, that useful energy. And I guess we've mentioned it before, it kind of, a lot of this went into hip hop and and in that direction, which is really kind of, I guess, the next rock and roll. It was the the big change in sound that the the youth wanted, so. Yeah, I mean, we'll never know, obviously, because if you haven't been aware of this, Kurt Cobain killed himself at 27, so we'll never know. Certainly, if you look at Chris didn't really do anything in the mainstream after that. And Dave Grohl basically sat down and created the Foo Fighters, which their first album was just him playing instruments and doing things that he felt he needed to do just to be creative. Yeah. But the Foo Fighters obviously become this massive beast, like one of the biggest rock bands on the planet now, but they don't sound like Nirvana. They're much more of a mainstream American rock outfits rather than anything else so we could probably come back to that that sad end and the futures um but let's let's talk about the album itself yes never mind which is one of the best-selling albums in history of of any kind massive it was so nirvana had obviously their relationship with sub pop and i think sub pop got into financial difficulty so this is pre them selling millions off the back of nirvana coming out with bleach so they looked for a bigger label to release under and they went with DCG, who were an affiliate of Geffen. I don't quite know how the record industry works at that point, but <laughs> they're various named companies that, that helped them out. But they recorded it um, in 1991 in Sound City, which is super famous studio. Neil Young, Fleetwood Mac, Rage Against Machine then recorded there because they love the sound and it's got this very clean sounding uh, sound. Yeah, and... I've mentioned this before, probably way back when we talked about Foo Fighters, but if you haven't seen Dave Grohl's documentary on Sound City, 
go and look it up because it's absolutely wonderful. Really, really interesting hearing him talk about that studio and the records that were produced there. And of course, he talks about some of the Nirvana stuff. And one of the big things about Sound City was it had a room that was renowned for being incredible for a drum sound. So the drumming yeah. that you hear on, I assume you're going to start with Smells Like Teen Spirit, but that drum crack that comes in at the start of that part of that is dave grohl's drumming ability but part of it is just the sound you get in that room is so perfect well let's talk about that because the the switch from bleach to Nevermind in terms of firstly sound quality but drumming i mean you, you gotta yeah. hand it to to grow i mean when dale crover from the melvins was he recorded a couple of tracks on bleach he recorded floyd the barber and a couple of other songs and that was a step up, but when Grohl came in and you hear that first hit of the drum, it catches your ear and it caught Cobain's ear as well. So when Grohl was trying out, they saw how hard he was hitting the drums, absolutely smacking it. And they also saw how good his rhythm was and his timing. He had perfect timing. And I think Novoselic and Cobain both just said, this is this is the guy. Yeah, so I, I absolutely love Dave Grohl as a drummer. I've seen him drum for them crooked vultures yep. and i think i've said this before on this podcast he broke a drumstick within about eight seconds of the start of them playing he, yeah. he just hits the drums that hard but him learning to drum is the reason why he is the drummer he is because he didn't learn in a in a standard way he talks about basically not even having a drum set when he was learning to play he had two drumsticks that were actually marching sticks so they were gigantically fat and would set up pillows in the formation of a drum set and then try and play along to ramones records or minor threat records with really fast 200 beats per minute aggressive drumming and so when he hit 16 he says when i was 16 and someone gave me an actual normal pair of drumsticks on a normal drum set i was just shattering everything i was breaking cymbals like they were teacups that's the reason i've always been such a basher i've tried to learn the subtleties of dynamic drumming but it's no use and you talk about his rhythms and and his timing he says for our family trip in the summer the three of us would pile into our tiny ford fiesta and drive to ohio or chicago which is a good 12-hour drive going through mountain passes and cornfields and i learned about rhythm in a funny way on those trips my mother and i would sit up front in the car and she taught me how to sing harmonies or we would do these little games name that tune or snap our fingers to the song on the radio as we drove through mountain passes to see if when we came out the tunnel i was still on the beat <laughs> honestly it taught me about rhythm and meter and still to this day it's one of my favorite games to play and that yeah. just shows you like it's almost implanting all of that stuff into a kid's brain so that it just becomes a natural thing yeah and smells like teen spirit i mean it's such a an incredible song it was recorded um the one that you hear on the album it was the second take that they used in sound City. really yep the, wow the vocal track with cobain was his third take he almost never wanted to do anything more than that he did three or four and was like you know choose it i'm not going yeah. any further you, you know my voice isn't that great <laughs> anyway so so crack on so they just laid it down uh, and just that's it it's just this raw material that's just comes out of the speaker it's just great and you talked about the pixies Cobain has said this is his attempt to write a Pixies track, which I think is really odd because I think there are things on this album and on Bleach that sound more like the Pixies to me than this does. Yeah. There's a nice little story about the the title, oh, which really? comes from a friend of Cobain's, Kathleen Hanna, who was a member of Bikini Killer, another another band. So 
she wrote on his wall, Kurt smells like teen spirit. Um, because of the deodorant <laughs> teen spirit, which she they must right. have, was being sold uh, at the time. So he saw this slogan on the wall, didn't understand what it was talking about. He he was thinking, this is some, the kind of a revolutionary slogan and picked up on it. He had no idea that it's, he thought he was being referenced about a deodorant. He actually literally smelled like teen spirit. Yeah. But he thought, what a brilliant title for a song. And, you know, the rest is history. It's That's quite... amazing. They must have been so happy when this thing popped up and it's like the most famous track that year and ongoing. Yeah, brilliant, isn't it? Oh, amazing. And obviously you've got the video as well, which is this kind of yeah. high school cheerleader thing. But really dark, but almost dark. like Halloween-ish in feel. Yeah, and such a change from the music videos that were going around at the time. And, and obviously this is just when music videos were becoming huge and you've got, you know, your MTV's picking up on this stuff and, and suddenly it became huge on MTV and obviously that just snowballed Nirvana into selling so many records. And one of the big things was while grunge had had some level of success in the US, Nirvana really, really hit it big in the UK. And I think one of the things was the notoriety that came with that Top of the Pops performance. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. So they did a performance. They, I think they were pissed off that they weren't allowed to play it live. Right. So I think yeah. they had to pre-record and then mime along to the pre-recorded thing when they actually went live. And so Kurt's off on what he's doing deliberately to piss around with it. He spits on the camera lens. There's all sorts of stuff. And they, the, the British press picked up on it and just went mental at them. Yeah. And I, oh, this is where I haven't done my research, but I'm just going to tell this half-baked story and you can follow up on it. But they also did a, they, I think they went to some European TV show and I don't know whether it was the Netherlands or Scandinavia or somewhere, but the TV host didn't have a clue who was who. And Amazing. they clocked it. So in the recording on TV, and there's a, there's got to be a YouTube clip on this somewhere, I think Grohl is up at the front pretending to be the singer with the guitar Cobain's on drums I think I think or well, they've all moved around right they've got no idea what they're doing but they're just kind of flapping around with the music <laughs> in the background and it's just like well fuck it you know if you're gonna just play pump our tracks through some speakers then we'll just do whatever we like yeah and they were very much one of those bands that were all about the purity of playing live playing the music as it should be which is cool I love that yeah yeah definitely so yeah uh, that opens the album and then obviously you've got in bloom that crops up next which is one of my favorite tracks again because this is the one that i got to listen to first in the playground right uh, but I, I i think it's a huge track and it's interesting listening to cobain talk about this in subsequent interviews he was saying that smells like teen spirit was so huge and they had tracks like in bloom which were these big kind of anthems there weren't really any anthems on in neutro and i think the way this album starts off is so solid oh yeah such such huge tracks that's made it such a, a special album to, to listen to yeah and we talked about this before starting recording one of the things that is really fascinating for me in in this album is how much variety there is in terms of being able to distinguish and understand what kurt's actually singing because smells like teen spirit is probably the most misheard song on the planet like no one really knows exactly all the lyrics on that i mean i'm sure there are plenty of people that do but you know when you're first trying to figure them out it's almost incoherent yeah and then you've got things like in bloom and come as you are where 
the vocals are very strong and you can hear every word he's saying but in bloom freaked me out for years tens of years i think when obviously the lyric of he he's the one who likes all our pretty songs yeah and he likes to sing along and then they say but you don't know what it means and i'm sitting there thinking i don't know what it means <laughs> and, and what and what have i missed out on is there some deep meaning to the lyrics and cobain's always said lyrics are secondary the songs are the most important part and a lot of the lyrics that he recorded were basically bollocks but he throws something like that in and suddenly i'm sitting there as a as a 13 year old thinking oh shit i'm missing some deep meaning in all of these songs which i just don't understand i do think there are some more political or more personally commentary on relationships and things in there that i do think he downplays a lot of that because he doesn't necessarily want to talk about getting into the meaning of things yeah because some of those are really dark yeah well that's that's true i mean their their back catalogue is a there are some demons that are that are talked yeah. about in there so yeah i mean where do we go from there i mean there are so many songs obviously <laughs> come as you are i mean if you if you like playing the guitar that's probably one of the first ever bass lines you're ever going to learn yeah it's relatively not one of my favorite songs on the album mainly because i think it's a bit slow and quiet i think that's a positive though because i think it brings everything down after that initial onslaught and so i think it balances it balances the album. I don't think you could have an album that was full of Teen Spirit and In Bloom. Yeah. I think it would just become a bit tiring and you just sort of tune out from it. Yes. And they've got Come As You Are and, and Polly in this album and they're yep. bookmarked by some of the noisiest. Right. I mean, after Come As You Are, you've got Breed. I love Breed. Yeah. and after, So loud. After Polly, you've got Territorial Piercings, which and yep. both of them are just this kind of assault on the ears and it's brilliantly brought together so that the the tracks really do run it's a proper album like yeah. you can listen to it as a real album and it just works together yeah well you mentioned polly i love polly and partly it's because of that weird i guess that contrast between the sound of the music and the content of the lyrics so it sounds almost sad and a bit wistful musically but he's i mean it's written from the perspective of a guy who's kidnapped and is doing horrendous things to some girl. And it's like, I remember listening to this when I was a teenager and thinking, why would you write stuff from this perspective? But really, there's something deep and emotional about it that, that is fascinating. Yeah, it is a fascinating story. It's, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. And the more you listen to it, the more you realise what the lyrics are about. It's even more uncomfortable, but you listen to it. But it also feels like, Cobain's written it specifically to make the listener uncomfortable and to pull them into this world that he's uncomfortable about and he wants to share that discomfort. Yeah. And yeah, the album goes on. I mean, we haven't really mentioned Lithium, which is one of the best sing-along I love Lithium. ever. You've got songs like Lounge Act, which just, I don't know why, but I just love it. I love the style of Lounge Act. And the whole album is has this sound which you've mentioned it's got this very sharp guitars the bass is melodious isn't it it's not mm-hmm. a kind of bleaches bass lines like it's all quite snarly but this is more optimistic and there's more major chords in there and the whole album is just this uh it's just this riot in a, in a really wonderful way I'm, I'm i don't know just love it i want to bring us back to lithium because it has probably my favorite lyric in the entire I mean, maybe even the entire of Nirvana's back catalogue of 
I'm so happy because today I found my friends there in my head. What a way to open a track. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And it's brilliant and almost kind of another reflection of Cobain and his troubles. Yeah. Um, And his, we'll probably go there at the very end, but it's, uh, yeah, it's difficult to look back on now. And obviously when, when I was listening to this, I knew the band and I knew the album, but I didn't ever watch interviews with them. So when, you know, he eventually dies, I didn't have that personal connection in the way that I think a lot of people who were a little bit older than us probably were hit much harder by it. Yeah, because he was considered the voice of a generation by so many people, as you've said before. And so having that that voice ripped away from you must have been really hard. I mean, you've only got to look at bands in the 90s who were mainstream. We might not have liked those bands because they were very boy bandy type, but you you saw the reaction when they broke up of just how people felt about that. You you take that and magnify it a hundred times, a thousand times, because you, you know there's no chance of anything ever coming back from this. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Voice of a Generation. I mean, just jumping into the numbers for a little bit. DCG said they wanted Nirvana to sell 250,000 records for this album to match Sonic Youth. I think Goo was the album that Sonic Youth had recorded and had done really well. By the end of 1991... They were selling 400,000 records a week. So they were blowing through their targets every single week into November, December of of 1991, which is absolutely insane. And I don't think they quite knew because they started touring the album and you listen to interviews with Cobain and with Grohl, who were, and I think they were in the Netherlands at the time, starting to get phone calls and saying, you're huge. And these guys are like, we're just in the back of a random tour bus touring these little tiny venues across Europe. And they just were just starting to realise that the album was so significant that it was going way beyond their expectations. And even the music venues were starting to sell out very quickly because obviously, you know, world world travels across the Atlantic. And I think they suddenly realised while they were on that tour that actually this was huge yeah again this is another thing that sadly is almost probably a contributing factor to Cobain's mental health issues because he's the ultimate poster child for imposter syndrome like he's a man who really he's created one of the biggest albums of all time one of the most significant of a generation and yet he felt like I'm not talented why did people like this stuff that this isn't who I think I am this is not like my brain is telling me that I don't deserve any of this yeah and so it just exacerbated all of that and I mean the Seattle grunge scene apart from anything there was a huge drug abuse issue going on there generally among all the bands that were not all the bands but a lot of the bands in that scene and you know he was self-medicating with a lot of booze and drugs and that's just a not a good place to be well this is where in the end of 1991 and into 1992, this is where a lot of the problems happened. You mentioned that the, the drug scene, um, Grohl and Novoselic weren't into heroin and all that stuff. They were obviously lots of alcohol, but they were not really into that that scene. Cobain was, and obviously Courtney Love was, and mm-hmm. they were an item. And in February, they got married. And then at this point, the two of them were spending more time together. And this is where people hear the stories about Courtney Love and oh she broke the Nirvana up and she changed the dynamic of the band so in March they met we got married in February in March of 92 so they'd split royalties to mm-hmm. start with even though Cobain was writing all the songs 
he then said actually because i'm the songwriter i want all the royalties for our music mm-hmm. and grand novice said actually you know what that's that's probably fair but he also asked for retrospective royalties for nevermind so they'd written it as a we've all got shared royalties right courtney love appears suddenly he's wanting all of this back history of cash and it just starts to get ugly and i think there were bad feelings in the band i think that's what that's pissed off now michelle it pissed off Grohl. they had that famous reading set in 92 yeah that was at the height of all of this stuff and you've got a band who are kind of conflicted and and it never really finished yeah and it's it's interesting because when we talked about courtney love and whole when tempest came on the podcast one of the things that was interesting that came out of that was that courtney love very much didn't want to be seen as taking creative work from cobain she felt that her creative abilities were more than enough for whole and she wanted to keep that thing separate, but there was clearly an element of them sharing ideas, bouncing ideas off each other and becoming much, much closer as creative, a creative partnership, even though they were working within separate bands. And I can imagine that that would be tricky to bring into that dynamic where you've got this outside person to your band who is almost probably a more important voice than yours. Yeah, and that time there's all sorts of interviews. And interestingly... In the following year, when they released In Neutro, it seemed to take the pressure off. And I think he wasn't just under pressure from, under internal pressure that had been created from the, the royalty issue. But I think as a songwriter, suddenly you're, you're everywhere. Everyone wants to talk to you about your songwriting abilities and they're all saying what's next. And in 1993, when they released In Neutro, Cobain's been interviewed saying he was really happy. It came out pressure's off he's released another good album it sold really well and just for a brief year i think things were okay what do you think of a new try? i am a big fan yeah so a lot of people aren't and i completely get that but if, if you look at the songs in there as we said before there's no real standout anthem yeah. track but i love some of the noise like milk it i just think is one of the best noisiest vicious songs around there and then you've got Scentless Apprentice. Oh, such a good song as well. And some quieter songs. So, I don't know. But what do you think? For me, it's more up and down. It doesn't hold together as an album as well as Nevermind. And I think that's always been the problem that if I think I want to listen to some Nirvana, I'll end up listening to Nevermind or actually Bleach over in Utro. But it does have some of my favourite songs on. Heart Shaped Box is one of the first tracks I learned to play on guitar. Yeah. It's relatively simple, but I think it's an absolutely beautiful song. Penny Royalty is fantastic. And All Apologies is one of my all-time favourite Nirvana songs. I think the problem for me is that there's there's just not the same level of consistency as there is in Nevermind. And there's not the raw, pure anger that you get in Bleach. I think that's fair. And obviously a lot of the songs you just mentioned... We're in the Unplugged in New York album, right. album which was, was really their last last album they recorded together. That might be my favourite Nirvana album. It's a lot of people's <laughs> favourite. It's huge. And I remember, um, and I'm sure I'm not making this up, but there's a kid at school, I can't remember his name, but his dad, I've mentioned this on a previous podcast. I he think, did, yeah. His dad 
got tickets to this, flew him to New York. They weren't wealthy or anything, but they were just massive fans. And he went and took his son who was in the playground and said, oh, yeah. Came back one day and said, oh, I've, I've come back from New York to watch this this session. And, you know, what a it's piece incredible. of history. But weirdly, two of the best tracks on that album are not Nirvana songs. So Jesus Doesn't Want Me for a Sunbeam and The Man Who Sold the World, which I think is a better version of that song than the original Bowie. So you, you mentioned Bowie writing that plateau omi and lake of fire all meat puppet songs and then the vaselines did jesus don't want me for a sunbeam which is an interesting song actually if you've heard the original well the original's called jesus wants me for a sunbeam ah, <laughs> and okay. he switched it out because he didn't feel that that lyric was quite right for him personally interesting but yeah a brilliant album and if if people don't know what people associate nirvana with smells like team spirit and they don't know that there's an acoustic album floating around yeah. there really really listen to it it's brilliantly recorded um yeah. live session but the sounds bang on it's a it's a real well it's a very sad way to finish everything off because you know that was recorded in 94 and in 94 he was in rehab he escaped i think he jumped over a wall to get out and then took a taxi to a gun shop and the following week he was he was found dead and the, i mean the really sad thing about it was that there's there's all the we're not going to go into this we've said this before the courtney love killed him bullshit nonsense you maybe could argue that if this wasn't a guy who tried to commit suicide multiple times over the previous few years he just got successful that time there are all sorts of conspiracy theories which again i'm not going to dig into them because they're not even worth the time i mean you listen to interviews from girl and the and they both said the guy was he had chronic bronchitis he was an alcoholic he had a stomach condition which no one really knew what was going on with him. Two of his uncles killed themselves with guns. He tried suicide with painkillers earlier in the year. He was a mess. And to kind of start coming up with theories about, oh, someone else killed Kurt, it's like, just, no, nah, it's just not even a... Yeah, they tried to get him in rehab multiple times. He clearly wasn't interested in it. He had a lot of a lot of personal demons. And it, as sad as it is, sometimes people just have issues that they're never going to get past. Yeah, and... Uh, it's it's difficult and then you obviously look at what came after that with the way forward and you see these interviews with pretty soon after with with Grohl saying are you going to carry on with Nirvana are you just going to keep it going and Chris and Dave both said they kind of they could but how could you kind of carry on after that well you know there was I don't know that there was pressure from the record companies per se, but, you know, you've got this name, like the Nirvana name is is such a big name that you could carry it on and people would continue buying records in the millions. But, I mean, you've talked about how much control Cobain exerted over everything. Nirvana was Kurt. Yeah. Like, it's such a huge part of his personality. And we've, we've talked briefly about Chris didn't, do anything in the mainstream particularly after that in terms of big bands but dave grohl founded the foo fighters you listen to the foo fighters if you imagine if nirvana had switched into the sound that the foo fighters have yeah. they just have lost all of their fans straight away because i know lots of people who are nirvana fans who just think that foo fighters are a bit too mainstream and middle of the road american rock so i bought the first foo fighters album and i was one of those in line to to buy it and obviously you didn't hear it and on the radio there was nothing Mm -hmm. there so so i went down to the shop on the release day and bought it expecting another nirvana album 
and it was like wait a second this is more poppy and now i like it but back then i was disappointed i was like where is this you know where's this going it's different i also think that that first album doesn't really truly capture what foo fighters were about until he had other people because he played all the instruments on the first album but then the second album you start getting you know Taylor on drums and it's fascinating to me because Dave Grohl talks about Taylor being a much better drummer than he is yeah and part of that is just the fact that he's technically probably a better drummer Dave just has that power that I don't think anyone else really has yeah yeah it's definitely brilliant to listen to but yeah it's uh it's left a huge legacy and yeah I, I don't think the the end of Nirvana really I didn't really notice in the same way that I think probably a few people older than me would have really, really got caught up in. Yeah. But for me, you know, he died. I had a Kurt Cobain poster on my wall at home after he died. So with his, mm-hmm. you know, kind of his his little face and dates on there um, of, of when he was born and when he died. So yeah, I was a huge fan, but I didn't get personally upset. It was just a, you know, right. an icon, a musical icon, I guess, was the right the way that I looked at it. Yeah, and I didn't really get into Nirvana until a little bit later on. So I'd heard the tracks on the radio, but I didn't own Nevermind until I was probably 14 or 15 and was starting to get into that heavier sound. So it was only really then. I mean, obviously you heard about Kurt Cobain's killed himself and all this kind of stuff. And to me at that point, it was sort of almost, oh, some American rock stars died. And it was only once I got into the music, that I was like, oh shit, this is it. This is all I'm ever going to get to listen to from them. And I got more interested in, in the late 90s, partly because the original tape recording that I got from the school playground was probably a seventh generation <laughs> copy of a copy with stretch tape. And I played it a lot. So the tape was sounding worn out and then you get the whole thing on CD and it's like, holy crap, there's a whole new sonic experience. And because when you, I mean, many people listening to this won't remember, but tapes didn't capture some of those kind of hi-fi and lo-fi sounds that well. And when you had a recording of a recording and people were copying tapes across, you'd suddenly get this hiss and you'd get all this kind of extra artifacts that just broke up the audio. So when you get a clean digital version of of say smells like teen spirit and you hear Grohl smacking that drum it's another level of sonic kind of awesomeness yeah yeah it's incredible we normally talk about have you seen them live uh, yeah no obviously not um but neither of us would have done we both see the seen the foods so i guess it's kind of part of that legacy but no, no. yeah i think for me the live experience has to go down as unplugged in new york that to me feels like the live experience that i wish i could have had i'm sort of glad that i'm not a bit older and ended up seeing that performance at reading because that sounds like a kind of thing where you'd you turn up so excited and then it's a complete fucking shambles yeah i really like watching some of the live performances when they were a tiny weenie outfit yeah in in seattle and in europe when they were touring and you can find a lot of those and just the energy and the mosh pit that's going on in that room there's nothing like that today you look at these bands and there's just beer flying around everyone's sweaty there's no phones being held up in the air because people are just invested in the music and yeah i kind of look at that and think oh that would have been fun to go to see i think there is stuff like that out there today it's just that well i mean i don't know right now because obviously we've had almost two years of 
very limited live music options i do think there are bands that have that level of energy and crowds that have that level of energy it's just that we're too old to be seeking that stuff out these (laughs) days like i wouldn't want to be in that mosh pit i would be way down the back stood by the sound desk enjoying the noise but not necessarily uh getting involved yeah but yeah so haven't seen them live seen lots of bands who did the nirvana thing so in the late 90s and early 2000s you get a lot of bands being kind of copycats and yep. doing that that style of music and everyone down the front po going around but not Nirvana themselves and presumably they would have been a huge influence on your love for the loud yeah massive 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 I listened to off the back of that I got into Soundgarden um, Bush don't mm. know if you remember oh, them God, yes. who didn't really like Gavin Rossendale uh, was the lead singer of them who married Gwen Stefani I think but they were massive in the states and for mm. some reason didn't translate but there's their songs dark it's kind of it's almost back into the original grunge sound so i was a big fan of theirs and then uh yeah just a bunch of other bands that were kind of of that noisy punky nature but nirvana have always remained that kind of in the top bracket yeah for me it was because it was later on getting into them it was definitely rekindled my getting more involved in listening to Foo Fighters because I think Current of Shape came out in 97. So that was just around the right time for me to be listening to Nirvana and then to pick that up. And then also for me, it's the retrospective. It's looking back. So you've then got, you know, all the bands that you've mentioned, the them calling out as influences, obviously as a Nirvana fan, you then go and listen to a lot of those bands. And so for me, the biggest one's the Pixies. They they yeah. led me to the Pixies. True. And I'm just a massive fan of their work. And yeah, the two together are just such incredible bands that, yeah, I love them. So yeah, I guess that brings us to a an end of Nirvana. And in some ways, I'm quite glad because we've yatted on for quite a long time, but there's so much more. And it's quite incredible, actually, that what, a four or five year period yep. just has so much interest and detail and um yeah dig into it more there's there's now so much material out there that you can um really bury yourself in it if you want to yeah one of my mates sent me a link there's a bbc documentary that came out fairly recently i can't i can't find the link now it but it's on iplayer late september probably yeah in line with the 20th anniversary it, exactly that so if you want somewhere to start in terms of going and digging into them that's that's probably a decent place and you just go on go on iplayer and find it yeah check it out oh we didn't mention the baby in the album cover that doesn't matter (laughs) yeah baby now adult suing having i think he's made a decent chunk of money out of being the baby spencer eldon is the name yeah i don't know ironic isn't it that a little baby chasing a, a dollar bill in a swimming pool is kind of this i guess it foretells the the kid growing into a man and still chasing chasing the money <laughs> but there we go yeah yes we should definitely call it there but yeah good chat i they're such a big band and i'd say go listen to them but i can't imagine there's anyone listening to this that doesn't know nirvana pretty well no, everyone so, would. Yeah. yeah cool cheers mate enjoyed that one yep good one buddy Uh, thanks for joining us we appreciate you coming back and having a listen to us after our little break if you want to chat to us we are on facebook we're on instagram we're on twitter just have a look for i might be wrong i might be wrong uk on a couple of those platforms come and have a chat drop us a line let us know 
all of the Nirvana stories that we failed to mention on here, because let's face it, this podcast could be two or three hours long <laughs> if we brought up all of those stories. Uh, cheers, Henry. It's been good. Yeah, bring on the next one. Absolutely. Thanks, mate. Thank you for listening to another episode of I Might Be Wrong. 